Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, this begins on page 1031. As we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, we have seen that it's more like walking through an art museum than it is sitting in a lecture hall. That is, what we're given is a series of pictures or visions instead of a lecture or a direct address. And like some art museums, closely related pictures are grouped together in the same room, perhaps with the same theme. And John, as our tour guide through this museum, so to speak, has brought us most recently into the room with the collection of paintings related to the seven seals. Room we entered at the beginning of chapter 4. You recall that after we saw those exquisite paintings of the throne room in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, we've also been shown the harrowing depictions of the opening of the first six seals in chapter 6. From the four horsemen of the apocalypse to the martyrs in heaven crying out for justice to the great day of the coming of the wrath of God and of the Lamb. But beloved, we're not through. We're still and a place where there are more paintings to see in this room. So as we come to chapter 7, we have two more visions that serve as a sort of interlude between the opening of the sixth seal at the end of chapter 6 and the opening of the seventh seal at the beginning of chapter 8. So follow with me. We'll start there in verse 1 of chapter 7 and read through chapter 8, verse 1. Hear now God's holy word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Amen. Let's pray together again. Father in heaven, please, we ask, enlighten all of the hearts of your children here today, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Work, O Holy Spirit, by this word in our hearts today, we pray. Amen. Earlier this year, you may recall that in our evening services, we worked our way through the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament in our English Bibles. And what we saw was that it's a series of six disputations between God and his Old Covenant people. God brings indictments against his people, and then his people object in some way, and then he refutes their objection or their false accusations that they make against him. Now, one of these accusations that we saw that the people of Israel made against God was put forward in the form of a question. It said in this way, the end of chapter 2 in Malachi, where is the God of justice? They seem to accuse God of not caring about justice, of being absent from them, not bringing justice in their midst. And God 
responds to their accusation by saying that he is coming. In fact, he's coming to refine with fire and he's coming to judge, he says. And this response by God prompts the question, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Well, in a real way, we can hear from that portion of Scripture in Malachi a reverberation in what we saw last week in Revelation chapter 6, can't we? While the martyrs under the throne aren't accusing God of being unjust, they too are crying out for justice in some sense. They are saying, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood against those who dwell upon the earth? Crying out for justice. And the Lord, you remember, answers and says that they should rest a little while longer. But he also assures them that his just judgment is coming. And that's the, what we see right after that seal, the fifth seal. And the sixth seal is that great day of the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. At the end of the opening of that seal there, at the end of the chapter, we see a very similar question here in the mouths of those crying out to the mountains and hills to cover them. They say in verse 17 of chapter 6, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand before the judgment of this holy, holy, holy God? Who can survive? And as we come, you see, to chapter 7, the answer to that question is actually being given. John is being given two visions of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is this church, the church of Jesus Christ, that will be able and enabled to stand. And so we have two visions, and this morning we'll see two things. First, it's a vision of the church militant sealed and secured on the earth. That's what we have in verses 1 to 8. A vision of the church militant, sealed and secured on the earth. And then secondly, we see this vision, a vision of the church triumphant, standing and serving in heaven. So it's verses 9 to 17. So first, let's consider this first painting, we could say, this vision of the church militant, sealed and secured on the earth. I want to ask a series of questions about this painting, as it were. Where and when is this vision actually taking place? The events that we see in this vision. We can see there right in verse 1 that John sees four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Some of the visions that we've seen in this book already uh, take place in heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 are of the throne room in heaven. Uh, the martyrs are under the altar that's in heaven. Other visions we see take place on the earth or things that happen on the earth. The first four seals are about the four horsemen coming to bring judgments upon the earth. The sixth seal is about this great day of God's wrath that comes 
to the earth. And here, as we see these four angels, we see this as a vision of what's to take place on the earth. So it's something happening on the earth. But what's occurring? Well, John sees these angels. They're standing on the four corners of the earth, talking about the entirety of the earth in that way, and saying that they are restraining these four winds. They're doing a work of restraint. And once again, to understand what this painting is, is showing us, we recognize that the Lord here is painting with the colors that come from the Old Testament prophets. In this image of these angels holding back the four winds, we hear an echo from the prophet Zechariah. You remember it's from Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6 that we have the image of the four horses or even the four chariots. But in that very same section in Zechariah chapter 6, we're told that these four chariots are also described as four winds. The four winds that are coming to bring judgment upon the earth. And so you can see then that these four winds are to be connected, related to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the first four seals. And so these four winds are a picture again for us of the judgments that will come upon the earth throughout the time of Christ's first and second coming in this period that we are currently in. But we also see that these winds are not just like a hurricane coming to bring some measure of destruction on the earth, but they're also described as those who will blow against the earth, the sea, and the trees. And here we are getting echoes even from that sixth seal. So we could see included in this then is also that great day of judgment that will come. That final judgment when the whole universe will be utterly shaken. So these four winds, they represent these judgments that come both throughout the period before Christ's second coming and in that final judgment. But what happens to God's people during this time? What is it that occurs to them? Are these judgments going to shake them? Are they going to destroy them? Are they going to harm them? When God's judgments are unleashed on the earth. And here, again, John sees another angel. Even as these four angels are holding back these winds that are going to come, this other angel comes and cries out to them, coming from the east, that is where the sun rises, always the direction in which the message of gospel news, good news comes, from the east comes this message saying, stop, wait, don't send forth these judgments until all of God's servants can be sealed on their foreheads. So you see, before Judgment is enacted. This is a vision then of something that takes place on the earth in which God's servants are sealed. A vision in which we could say throughout the church age in one sense and before the final ultimate judgment at Christ's return, this sealing is going to occur. 
This is a reminder to us, beloved, that as we're looking at this vision and then this next vision, and John says, and then I saw, and so he's showing us another picture. While he's giving them in the order in which he saw the visions, that doesn't mean that it's occurring in the order chronologically in which the events take place. Because what's happening as we come to this vision, in a sense, we're going back to the same time frame of the first four seals, that whole period of this time between Christ's first and second coming. That there's this sealing that occurs. But what is the significance of being sealed? What, what is actually being pictured? What's the meaning of this? And here we're reminded of what a seal was in the ancient world. You know how kings, for example, would have a signet ring. And if there was a document that he was to send out, to send forth, to show the authenticity of this document and to secure this document, he would take that signet ring and seal that document by pressing it into hot wax, showing that it genuinely came from him. And so in the same way, we could say that this, this is in some measure the image that we are to, to, to see, this seal that's placed on the forehead of God's servants. It's first of all a seal of authenticity. God is saying by this seal that he places on his servants, this one is truly mine. He is one who belongs to me. She is one who has been genuinely adopted into my family. They are genuinely my children. This understanding of the meaning of the seal on the forehead is confirmed when we see the same language being used later in Revelation chapter 14. If you were to flip over there to Revelation 14, and you just look at verse 1. Listen to what it says. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The exact place in which this seal is placed. They have here in that passage the name of God and of the Lamb written upon them. And so it's a sign of ownership that we are bondservants of the Lord and of, of God. We belong to him. He owns us. You could say it this way as Christians, we are those who bear the name of Christ. This connection between a seal and having the name of God is seen in other places in Scripture as well. I won't turn there, but let me read to you what 2 Timothy 2.19 says. Paul writes, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see, there's this connection between being sealed and the sealing and the name of God. Thus to be sealed, we can say, is to be authenticated as one who genuinely belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, who genuinely is one who has taken his name upon yourself. But remember, a seal is not only that which authenticates, 
part of its purpose as well in the ancient world was also to secure. So that's what we have here as well. This seal secures God's people from the harm of God's judgments. And here in the background, we have another color from the Old Testament prophets brushstroked on this painting. And that's what we find in Ezekiel chapter 9. There you may recall the prophet Ezekiel has a vision himself. And he sees that there are executioners that are going to come and they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. But before this group of executioners are going to go and bring death, he sees a man in linen and he is instructed by the Lord, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan at all the abomination that are committed, abominations that are committed in this city. In other words, those who are lamenting the idolatry, those who are truly belong to God, they are to receive this mark on their forehead. And then afterward, in the very next few verses, it says in Ezekiel 9, then the executioners are to come to kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. Later in Revelation, we'll see how Satan and the beast try to counterfeit this, and they have the mark of the beast. But here in this passage, in Ezekiel, it's the mark that God puts on his own. It's a picture similar to what we can think of from the great Passover, how the blood of the lamb marks the doorposts and the lintel of the houses of God's people Israel in the land of Goshen so that when the angel of death comes, the angel will pass over those houses and the firstborn of Israel are protected from judgment. So now here, this seal in Revelation 7 is a picture of not only authenticity but of also security that God's people are protected in the midst of his judgment. Now let's understand what this does not mean. It does not mean that God's people will not experience trials, sufferings, and great tribulation. When judgments are unleashed on the earth, Christians are not immune from wars, famines, pestilence, death. We know that by experience. We do and we will experience trial and tribulation. John himself, remember in chapter 1, verse 9, said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. He himself was going through tribulation then. We see it in the letters. The churches were going through suffering and tribulation. So it's not that we will not go through trials and tribulations. But no, what the sealing means is this, that we as God's people are spiritually protected in the midst of and through those tribulations. We are secure in Christ so that by his power, by his strength, we are enabled to respond to every trial in faith. That the pressures and influences, the dangers and the snares, the toils and tribulations of this sinister world will not overcome us or ultimately destroy us. But we will overcome. 
them and be faithful to the end. Beloved, isn't that a comfort to your heart? That no matter what you are experiencing now and no matter what we will experience in the future, you are secure. So often we can look at our own hearts, can't we? And we can see how weak we really are. How in ourselves we often stubble, stumble and struggle. And how we can even fear when we see the weakness of our faith. Fear that we will make shipwreck of our faith and be swept away. But beloved, if you're in Christ, God assures you saying, I have sealed you and I have made you secure. You are being guarded. You are being kept by my power. And it's by my power that your faith will not fail. And through faith, you will endure for a salvation that's ready to be revealed openly at the last time. Beloved, as a Christian, you have been sealed. And no matter what trials and tribulations you go through, your faith will not fail because God has sealed you. But are all Christians sealed? I mean, after all, in this vision, we're told that it's a certain number. It's 144,000 who are sealed. So are all Christians sealed? Some, you may know, take this number, 144,000, quite literally. And they say that it refers to a very definite number that is 144,000. Maybe you know of the cult, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They would say that this is a limited number of believers who will spend eternity in heaven. And they also would say that that number has already been reached. Um, in 1935 it was reached. And so now you can't be a part of the 144,000. Sorry. But they're not the only ones. Uh, dispensational Christians, you may know, uh, see this as a number that represents the ethnic Jews who convert to Christ after the church has been raptured out of the world before a period they call the Great Tribulation. But as we have seen already, and we'll see again, numbers and images in this book need to be understood symbolically given their Old Testament background to help us understand what's going on. So throughout Revelation, John takes Old Testament language and, he, and the imagery about even the nation of Israel. And what does he do? He applies it to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, that these, ever and always, are the only true people of God, the only true Israel. Even as Paul said in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel are true Israel, but really only those who have faith in the Messiah. In the Old Covenant, it was those who had faith in the coming Messiah. Those in the New Covenant, faith in the Messiah who has come and is coming again. And so that's what's going on here. It's the true Israelites that are being described here by the 144,000. That is all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ from Adam and Eve to the end. 
You know, this understanding is confirmed when we realize that this list of the 12 tribes is unlike any other listing of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's going to be listed in order by uh, birth, usually with Leah's children first, and then, then maybe Rachel's, and then after that, the two concubines. That's what's usually given. But here, who's listed first? It's not Reuben, the firstborn, it's Judah, who's born fourth. Why is Judah listed first? Because it's a picture reminding us that this great throng, this that is the redeemed through all ages, is led by none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus himself. And then you'll notice as well, the sons of Jacob's concubines, which would normally be listed last, are listed after Reuben. You have Gad and Asher and Naphtali. Why are they brought forward up in this list? Well, one suggestion perhaps is this. It's reminding the church is not made up of only ethnic Israelites, but even those who are outcasts, even those who are Gentiles. Gentiles are incorporated into this body. And then the other thing to note that's different about this list is you don't find the tribe Dan listed. In fact, you also don't find the tribe Ephraim that's normally listed. You find Joseph and Levi who are normally not listed. Why would the tribes of Dan and Ephraim not be listed here? I think a strong suggestion that we should consider is that Dan and Ephraim are the two tribes with the locations in which the golden calves of Jeroboam were placed and set up. And the point being made is this, that this listing of God's people, it will not include idolaters and apostates in it. No idolater will enter into heaven in that way. And so you have this number, the 144,000, and this listing in relation to the tribes, but it's used symbolically, symbolically to represent these things I've just mentioned, but as well to represent that it's the whole number of God's elect that are sealed every last one. 12 times 12 times 1,000. You see later when you look at the New Jerusalem, it talks about you have the 12 tribes, but also the 12 apostles, 12 times 12, and then a 1,000 to the fullest extent, the fullness of God's covenant people throughout all of history. And it's a reminder then that every single one of God's elect will be saved. Not one will be lost and all will be sealed for the day of salvation. The full number. But what about you this morning? Are you one who can say, I have been sealed? How does it happen? How does someone become sealed in space-time history? Well, here is where what Paul writes in Ephesians 1 is helpful for us. He describes our salvation this way. He's saying, in Christ... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, the seal is the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes and regenerates your heart, gives you a heart of flesh and takes out that heart of stone, and he comes to dwell within you, that's when you are sealed. That's when you are marked out as God's own child. And if you have been given the Spirit, then when you hear the gospel, when you hear the word of truth, you believe it. You trust in the Savior who's proclaimed in that gospel. And this reality that you have been sealed by the Spirit is publicly signified in the waters of baptism. When as one who has been sealed with the Spirit, you are baptized into the one name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that his name is put upon you. You belong to him. So that's the question. Have you joined the ranks of God's church here on earth? What theologians call the church militant. The church at war. Not that we fight with physical weapons. No, but we fight with spiritual weapons by faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is these and only these true Christians who are sealed and protected from the harm of God's judgment. The question I ask you is, have you been sealed? And if so, you are secure. And you cannot be any more secure. Isn't that the point of the last line of that great hymn that we sometimes sing, A Debtor to Mercy Alone? You remember how it ends, more happy, but not more secure the glorified spirits in heaven. Those who have died and are now in heaven, they are they're more happy than we are because we still live in this fallen sinful world and there's still much sorrow, trouble, trial, and tribulation. But they're not any more secure because if you're in Christ, you have been sealed by his spirit and you are just as secure as the glorified spirits in heaven. So we see this vision of the church militant, sealed, and secured on the earth. But now we must turn to this other vision, the second painting, which is the vision of the church triumphant standing and serving in heaven. That's what we find in verses 9 to 17. And we ask the question, where and when is this vision taking place? Well, clearly we're no longer viewing what occurs on earth, but in heaven, The imagery that we saw in chapters 4 and 5 of the throne room in heaven reappears here in this vision. What do we see? We see this multitude singing where? Singing to God who's on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what we have in chapters 4 and 5. And once again, the, the, the elders reappear. And so do the, uh, the four creatures, which are those that were in that throne room vision. And they're all praising God and the Lamb. Verse 15 itself tells us, therefore they are before the throne of God. So this vision is what's taking place in heaven. But when? Well, we can see that this multitude is described as wearing white robes and holding palm branches. And so we recognize that it is after 
God's servants have completed their sojourn on earth. White robes, you remember, were what Christ promised in his seven letters to those who had overcome, those who had conquered. And so it's a picture of those who've overcome, faithfully enduring the trials and tribulations that went on on the earth. And now they are in heaven and have received white robes. Palm branches, not only are a reminder of Jesus' triumphal entry, but even further back, they're a reminder of the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember how palm branches were used to create these, these shelters and tents. What was the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles? It was to celebrate God's protection of the Israelites during their wanderings in the wilderness and their safe arrival to the promised land. And so here, as they're waving these palm branches, this multitude in heaven, they too are celebrating how God had protected them while they were wandering on the earth. And now they've arrived safely into the eternal promised land. And so here we have a picture of the church triumphant in heaven, rejoicing and praising God and the Lamb for bringing them safely through their pilgrimage in this desert world. But who is this great multitude that no one can number? Here I submit to you it's the very same group that was symbolized by the 144,000. But viewed not from the perspective of their time of trial on earth, but from the perspective of having completed their journey now in heaven. After all, the elder comes to John and asks this very question, Who are these that are wearing these robes? And where have they come from? From where have they come? And the answer that's given is these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. Great tribulation, of course, is a phrase you remember that comes from the prophet Daniel chapter 12. And there in Daniel 12, he says it's what's going to occur in the last days. But as you've heard from this pulpit many times, when are the last days? Peter explains very clearly on the day of Pentecost that the last days have begun with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. So when is the great tribulation? The great tribulation is that period between Christ's first and second coming. In other words, we're in it. We have been for 2,000 years. But these here in this vision are those who have come out of it. They've come out. They've passed through and now they're in heaven. And it's not a minuscule number of people either, is it? It's a great multitude that no one can number. You see, what's happening here is something similar to what we saw in chapter 5. In chapter 5, you remember how John hears about this one who can open the scroll. He hears with his ears that it's one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks up, he sees a lamb standing as though he was slain. And here... John hears that, who is it that's sealed? It's these 144,000, this imagery from the Old Testament. But when he looks up, he sees a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That's who the 144,000 are. God's people who believe the gospel from every tribe, nation, and language on the earth. And like the lamb standing, this multitude is also seen here in verse 9 
as standing before the throne. They are standing before the Lamb. And so you see who can stand. The end of chapter 6 asks the great multitude that have been secured and sealed by God. But how did this happen? How did they get there? How is it that they're enabled to stand? How are they enabled to have these white robes? How are they able to overcome all the trials and tribulations? And here I want to turn you again to verse 14. Notice what it says. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, they're not primarily there because they went through tribulation. They did not gain white robes through washing them in their own suffering or in their own blood, but through washing in the blood of the Lamb. The only way to be made clean is not through your own efforts or even through your own suffering, but through the atoning death of Christ on the cross on your behalf. This is the only way that you will have white robes. This is the only way that you will be enabled to stand before God and the Lamb, to not be harmed on the great day of judgment. It's by coming to Jesus in all of your sin and filthiness and crying out, wash me, Savior, or I die. His blood is the only fountain that can make you clean. And as you are cleansed by him, you are sealed by him. And when you enter into glory, you're given that white robe. And you are enabled then to serve him in his temple forever. And there at the end of this passage, verses 15 to 17, you see the language that we read in Isaiah 49. It's the fulfillment of that promise in Isaiah 49. Though you had to suffer, though you had to know hunger, though there was heat that you felt while you were on the earth, now in heaven, the Lamb who has been your shepherd all through this earth brings you to that place where you will never know any suffering again. In fact, he will lead you to those springs of living water and wipe every tear from your eye. Beloved, the good news today is this, that if, if you are one who's still in the filth of your sin, who has not come to Christ, the fountain of Christ's blood is still open for you to come and to be made clean. And the call and the cry is to not delay. Come to Christ today, for this fountain will not be opened forever. Indeed, one day the final, the seventh seal will be opened. As we see in chapter 8, verse 1, when there will be silence in heaven for half an hour, perhaps not what we expect with the opening of this last seal. But every time there is this kind of silence we see in the Old Testament, it is a prelude to ultimate judgment. And you see, when that seventh seal is opened, all the singing all the praising, all the crying out even of holy, holy, holy around the throne in heaven will stop and every hand will be placed over the mouth. 
for the end will come and God will bring about the completion of his salvation and of his judgment. So flee to Christ while there's still time. And beloved, you who are Christians, we who are Christians, until that day, that final day, dear church, let us be those who arise as the church militant while we're still here on the earth, knowing knowing that there is going to be an innumerable multitude that believe on the Lord and are saved. And so let us not be silent now, but declare the glorious good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we thank you for these wondrous paintings, this picture book from heaven by which you communicate to us wondrous, comforting truth. So Lord, would you press the realities that all these pictures mean into our hearts? Would we praise you all the more? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.